Thank you for being here this evening. You know, the fictional story is told about a gentleman who died and he went to the pearly gates and Peter gave him the option. He said, which do you choose, heaven or hell? He said, well, can I investigate both of them? And so he rolled a video about hell and the video showed people dancing, partying, drinking beer, engaging in all sorts of immorality, driving luxury cars. And then he said, okay, let's see the video about heaven. And the video showed a bunch of people gathered around a throne as they sang and and gave praise to God. And after it was finished, Peter asked him again, so what do you choose? He said, you know, I got to say, I'm going to choose hell. And immediately he was thrust in the, the lake of fire and brimstone where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he, he, he shouts out, hey, what gives? Where's all, the, where's all the partying, all the dancing, and all the, the fun people? And he said, oh, that was Satan's promotional video. We have been locked in a series over the last several weeks, and we've taken probably, a, I guess, a two-week break because of my absence. Tyler filling in for us last week did a great job. We're picking back up, and we're almost done, so take heart. If you're, if you're tired of it, we're almost to the finish line, but we're looking in Ephesians 6 at these different uh, pieces of armor that Paul talks about, and we've got two more left. We've got the sword of the Spirit, and the next week, prayer. You know, we've said throughout this series that we are locked in a spiritual battle, and the sooner we recognize that, the better off we're going to be. You can, you can decide not to acknowledge that. You can ignore it. You can decide that you don't want to fight, but you're in the battle whether you like it or not. And you can't choose to be neutral here. you got to pick a side, right? When you enlist in the Lord's army, you also become a fighter. And you can't sit, can't be a spectator. you got to be a participator. Like we've said, the devil operates by consent and cooperation. He needs your authority to bring hell into your life. He has no authority unless you give it to him. He has power, but he has no authority. And so we talked about that throughout this series. We talked about how he's crafty, he's cunning. We brought to light that he is a subtle serpent, that he's a master of disguise, that he is a roaring lion, that he's the father of lies, that he is the great dragon, that he is the prince of this world. And because he is all of these things, that makes him our enemy. And because he is our enemy, we must be ready to fight. Now, Paul talks about the seriousness of this battle. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And then our signature passage throughout this series, Ephesians 6, 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. This is the fight of our lives. Souls are at stake here. And every day there are numerous casualties. We can see the bodies, the souls, piling up around us. The devil continues to be highly successful. In some cases we could say that he is winning even though he doesn't win the war, right? The devil has singled you out. And as I've said before, Sam and I talked about this not long ago, I, I don't believe that the devil necessarily is against you as much as he's against God. If that makes sense. The devil hates God. And therefore, he goes after the people that God loves, which is you. 
And he wants you to be unsuccessful in this spiritual fight. He wants to win against you because that's a small victory against God, even though he knows that he is ultimately a loser. Therefore, you can't be indifferent here. You've got to understand what this is all about. You know, when I was coaching, we, uh, we played this school, Wilburn, Wilburn, Arkansas. They were in our, our conference. Wilburn is about an hour north of Searcy, Arkansas, if you know where Searcy Harding is. And I don't even know if it's a school anymore, but they had very few kids. It was a very remote area of Arkansas up in the hills, but they were in our conference, and their high school team was pretty good. We always struggled to beat them, but their junior high, not so much. My junior high, on the other hand, was really good. I mean, every year that I was there, we had a really good junior high team. And this particular year, we were fighting for a conference championship, and we had to go play Wilburn. Now, Wilburn didn't have enough kids to make uh, a girls' junior high team, And they barely had enough kids to make a junior high boys team. So they combined the two. They had five players, four boys and one girl. That's all they had. And so I thought about it, and I thought, you know, it's going to be natural for my kids who are, who are pretty good. They should win the district. It's going, to be, it's going to be enticing for them to overlook this bunch. And you know what happens when you do that, especially as young kids. You get beat. And I also knew that it was probably going to be a tendency to back off since they had a girl on their team. And so I told them, we're going full force. We're playing this like it's any other game. If you, uh, if you go easy, then you're going to get beat. And I, I liken that to this spiritual battle. If we go easy, we're going to get beat. If we take this too lightly, we're going to fall prey to the devil. Victory still has to be seized. Doesn't matter if, we're, if, if the other team is undermanned. Doesn't matter if we are guaranteed victory because we are, we still have to go and fight because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I also noticed when I was coaching that there was this tendency when a team was way ahead to let off the gas a little bit. You have a big lead, it's a tendency to back off and just coast. And I saw it over and over again when a team did that. They ended up almost losing or maybe even losing. When you started to let off the accelerator is when you started to get beat because there's something about a team that's way behind and has nothing to lose. They start throwing caution to the wind, taking chances, and before you know it, your lead has shrunk. And you might even look at the scoreboard at the end of the game and, and find out that you lost. Paul wrote about the nature of this battle and how we are to keep our foot on the accelerator. Beginning in verse 10 of Ephesians 6, it reads, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything to stand firm. So, so far, we've talked about these different accoutrements that the the soldier is to put on, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the sandals of the gospel of peace, all these different uh, uh, aspects of the armor that we've talked about so far. But you can put on every piece, but if you don't wield a sword, you're not going to be successful. Doesn't matter how much armor you have on to defend yourself, the goal is not to be walloped over and over again by the enemy and just take it. At some point, you've got to go from being defensive to being offensive, right? 
At some point, you've got to be willing to step out and, and take on the role of the aggressor. Now, when we think about a sword, what we often think about is the sword that is carried in every movie about gladiators or whatever, where you have a shield and you have this long six to eight foot sword, it's heavy, and you know the soldier wields it while holding the shield in front of him. And a Roman soldier would have carried that kind of sword, but he actually would have carried another type of sword, and I think it's the one that Paul is really you know, uh, um, relating to here. It's a, it's a shorter sword, almost like a knife, a dagger that was used in hand-to-hand combat because eventually it's probably going to end up in a hand-to-hand warfare type of situation. And it's harder to hold a shield, a heavy shield, and swing a sword when you're in close contact. And so you want a smaller dagger type of sword so that you can penetrate those creases in the armor and hopefully do some damage. And I believe that's what Paul had in mind here when he talks about the sword of the Spirit. It's an obviously vital piece of equipment. And as I said, all the armor that we've talked about up to this point has been defensive in nature. But at some point, you've got to be the aggressor. We can take great pains to protect ourselves, but eventually, we've got to be on the offense. When it comes to fighting the devil, turning the other cheek doesn't apply. We're going to have to assert ourselves. We're going to have to deliver some blows. We're going to have to wield a sword, not just to fight him off, but ultimately to destroy him. Now, the sword of the Spirit itself is a defensive and offensive weapon. It can deflect the devil's devices as well as kill his intentions. You remember when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness? He was you know, 40 days in the wilderness, he was, he was weak, he was vulnerable, he was hungry, and the devil tempts him with turning stones into bread, with jumping off the pinnacle of the temple, with bowing down and worshiping him. And Jesus combats the devil with the sword of the Spirit, right? It is written, it is written, it is written three times. He combats him with the sword of the Spirit. Now, the devil tries to turn the sword on him, right? Because the devil quotes Scripture as well. He quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 through 12. You think the devil knows Scripture? Absolutely he does. And so he tries to twist it and contort it to get at Jesus, but Jesus turns it back on him, right, and proves to be successful in the temptation. Notice how the Hebrew writer defines the power of this sword. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Take note also of what the psalmist says in Psalm 119. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. You go to verse 105, it reads, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to to my path. And then, of course, what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Again, you can put on every piece of armor that Paul has mentioned up to this point, but unless you wield the sword of the Spirit, unless you take up that sword, you will never be successful in defeating the devil. Without the word of God in your life, you will be helpless and hopeless, and you have no shot at toppling the devil. That's why Paul said to put on the full armor of God. Full armor, all of it. You can't can't take certain pieces 
You can't be half-dressed, and you certainly can't go into battle without your sword. So let's, let's talk about how we can be a better soldier. Just a few things. What can we do to be a better fighter, a better soldier? First of all, it's important for us to understand that the Bible points to a relationship. The Bible defines a relationship for us. It's not an end in and of itself. It points to a relationship with God, and we must be careful not to become so obsessed with head knowledge that comes from the Bible that we forget that this is about a relationship. We go to the source. God didn't love the world so much that he sent a book. He sent his son, and we, we learn about a relationship with him through God's word, obviously, he loved us enough that he sent his only begotten son. We know that Jesus is the living word, John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. You skip down to verse 14, and it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Hebrew writer begins his letter with the words, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he the world. Sadly, some people take this to mean that Jesus is important, but the Bible not so much. Or that Jesus is of most importance, and Scripture is just kind of there. But we know that if Jesus was the Word, then therefore that means something to us as far as if we're going to have a relationship with Him, we learn about that relationship through the Word, right? And so if we want a relationship with Jesus, if we want to know how to get close to Him, if we want to know what it means to be about the Father's business, if we want to know about salvation, if we want to know uh, about how to, how to worship, if we want to know what it means to keep His commands, because He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me. So it's a relationship that defines everything. But in order to know about the relationship and how I can have a relationship with him, I've got to know something about his word, right? So we build that relationship on a relationship with his word. Secondly, as we talked about this morning, we've got to remember our core. We've got to remember who we are at our core. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Let, let's not forget our core and let us not forget our mission as it pertains to that core. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, right? Baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are about making and growing disciples. That is our identity. You want to go to the realm of sports again, you hear oftentimes coaches talk about having a team identity. What's the identity of our team? I was very blessed a few weeks ago to hear uh, from, from someone that's been attending at Oldham Lane said, you know, you know what I love about this church? You all have a definite identity. You know who you are, and it's right here on the front of your bulletin. Make and grow disciples. For better or for worse, that's what you are, and you're not budging on that. And, I, and that's good. That's good to hear because that is what we're about, making and growing disciples. We're about other things, but first and foremost, that's what we're about because that's what Jesus was about, right? Have an identity, and our identity should be wrapped up in Christ. That should be our core. Unfortunately, sometimes Christians lose sight of their core or they make their core about something else. And you've noticed it in the religious world lately. Our core becomes about egalitarianism. 
It becomes about wearing a tie on Sunday. It becomes about one cup versus multiple cups during communion. It, it becomes about things that we dwell on, that we focus on, and that we even divide over. But that's not our core. What is our core? We can't forget who we are at our core. These other things serve to sidetrack us and distract us from what's most important. We get caught up on these issues and we become agenda-driven, driven by an agenda other than to make and grow disciples. Who are we at our core? Scripture has that core. It has our center. It is Jesus Christ. And that certainly doesn't mean that there are other things that are unimportant, maybe even some of these things that we just talked about, but it's not our core. So don't get lost in the weeds, come back to our core. And a third point is that spiritual nourishment comes from digesting the Word of God. If we're going to be successful in this fight against the devil, if we're going to truly wield the sword of the Spirit, then we, we've got to have proper nutrition. we got to have proper nutrition, a well-balanced diet serves to keep us healthy. The proper food provides energy. It's kind of like gas to a car. It makes us go. It takes passion and zeal and fervor to run this marathon of faith. Without the proper nourishment, we're going to be lethargic. We're going to feel fatigue. We cannot function as we should without a heaping helping of God's word. Again, Psalm 119, this time 103 reads, how sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Prophet Jeremiah said, your words were found and I ate them, and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. You know, the sweetness of God's word comes from the fact that it enlightens, it protects, it provides hope, it sustains our hope, it brings comfort and peace, it shows us what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ and thus to be saved. It illustrates the love of God, it provides direction for our lives and shows us how to live righteously. I believe a well-balanced diet includes three things. The Bible, the Bible, and the Bible. Those three things are necessary for a well-balanced diet. When we feast on God's Word, we're partaking of the words of life. Nothing is more important to sustaining life, to training us for righteousness in Psalm 119 and verse 9, it reads, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Further down in verses 15 and 16, we read, I will meditate on your precepts, and I will regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. You've probably heard it said, you are what you eat. And there's some truth to that statement, right? When you eat, you, you ingest, you digest, the body eliminates what it doesn't need, and it keeps what it does so that you, you assimilate the food you take in, and it does become a part of you. It, it sustains you, right? So it's important to eat right in order to sustain life. And with Jesus, when we consume him, when we ingest him, his, his thoughts, his word, his character, we become more like him. When we digest all that he is, we begin to resemble all that, we is, uh, all that he is, and we are able to recite the words of Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. One more sports analogy. When I was coaching, it was my responsibility to, to uh, hire the referees, the officials, for all the home basketball games. 
there was one crew that I liked more than any of the others. Not because I felt like they favored me, but because I felt like they were fair. They didn't put up with a lot of guff. They were, they were a really good crew. They were all members of the church, actually, which was neat. But the lead official in that crew was a guy named Charles. Unfortunately, Charles has passed away now. His, his daughter was an English teacher where I was coaching. And Charles was a no-nonsense kind of guy. Uh, he was fair. Uh, he, he was not uh, an angry fella. He didn't get mad while he was officiating. He was calm, cool, and collected, but you knew where he stood. And you knew you better not confront him. Or if you did, you better not go too far or else you'd be in trouble. Well, we were playing a team in our district that I knew had a coach who had a, a style that um, a lot of people didn't agree with. Uh, he was loud. He was boisterous. One of those coaches that felt like he needed to assert his will toward the officials and the other team by, by yelling and screaming and constantly griping about calls. And so I wanted to make sure that for that game, at least, we had Charles and his crew. I'd like to have him for every game, but I couldn't always get him. And so I called ahead and made sure that Charles and his crew would be available for that game. Now, the night of the game came. We were ahead. We should have been ahead. We should have beat this team. Uh, they were not as good as we were. And as the game was going on, the coach was getting madder and madder. He was screaming and he was yelling at Charles and his crew. And Charles eventually came over and said, Coach, do you want to stay in the game? And he starts yelling, screaming, and flailing and all that. And Charles says, better stop. I'm warning you. And so he begins, you know, coach, uh, uh, refereeing again. And coach begins coaching again. And the game's going on. And we're, we're increasing our lead. And, and the coach is getting hotter and hotter. And finally, he screams out something, and Charles comes over and gives him a technical. And he's getting mad. He doesn't see any reason why he should have gotten a technical, which, you know, anybody in the room knew why. And so the game continues, and the guy is still, he's still hot. Maybe he felt like if, if, if he got mad and angry, it would inspire his team, but it wasn't working. So we were up big, and he keeps yelling and screaming, and finally Charles comes over there and says, sit down in that chair, don't you say another word, or I'm throwing you out of this gym. And he did. He sat down. He got quiet, probably because he knew he'd be suspended for the next game as well. And it's not fun to answer to your superintendent after you've been thrown out of a game. I never have, but my superintendent was an elder in the church. And so I had to make sure that, I mean, my superintendent said, you're not practicing on Wednesday. I want the kids to go to church. Even if they don't go to church, I want them to have the opportunity. So I knew I better not ever get thrown out of a game. But this gentleman was this close. And I'll tell you that story because I think everybody needs a little bit of Charles in them. Firm, fair, very confident that he wasn't going to take anything off anybody. He wasn't cowardly. He wasn't afraid. He was loving. You get him off the court, even that guy right there, he would have hugged his neck after the game. He was a loving, gentle human being. But when it came time to confront things, he was willing to do it. And he was willing to stand firm. We need that confidence and that conviction as soldiers of Christ, don't we? All too often, we're kind of we're like a rickety bridge over raging waters. We're, we're not real sure we'll hold anything up. Oftentimes, my sports watching is interrupted by hype about an MMA fight or a UFC fight. And I don't watch UFC, but this guy named Conor McGregor apparently fought last night, and he lost. You can Google him. He's a pretty sure-of-himself individual. 
He's uh, very confident, struts everywhere he goes. He talks the talk. He chirps at everybody. And he got beat last night. He's been beaten before. But what if we could have that same confidence, that same quote-unquote strut when we come into the room with the devil? Because unlike Conor McGregor or, or any of these fighters, we, we know who wins this one. We know who's victorious. We have nothing to fear because at the end, we win, right? Let's have that confidence, that conviction as we wield the sword of the Spirit, knowing that who we're fighting for and who we're fighting with guarantees that we don't lose. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, may we always take a winner's perspective. May we always seek to fight this battle, your battle, with the sword of the Spirit. May we fight with conviction. May we make sure that we are always at the center of your will, standing firm, ready to absorb the blows, but also to deliver them to the devil as well. May we fight like a victor and not a victim. And God, as, as we go through this life, as we get beaten down, as we, as we fall prey to the devil at times, may we pick each other up, may we support, encourage one another, and may we get up and keep fighting. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. It's been a good day. Thank you for being here. If we can help you tonight in any way, please let us know. We've said it every week in this series. There's no excuse tonight to leave here a loser. Let us help you. Let's help you win. David's going to lead us in a song. Come now as you stand, as we stand and as we sing.